Tracy Siska, Executive Director of the Chicago Justice Project. I'd like to welcome you to the Chicago Justice Show. Really appreciate you tuning in. Today with us, we have Madeline Baer, Policy Manager at the Chicago Alliance Against Sexual Exploitation, or CASE, which is what we're probably going to use for most of this, which you can find more information about the organization and the report they wrote um, that Madeline wrote. Too Little, Too Late, the CPD's Response to Sex Crimes, 2010 to 2019. And that's going to be the topic of our discussion. We'll get to Madeline in a little bit. First of all, I want to talk about some uh, occurrences, some things going on with the Chicago Justice Project. First off, as a way for you all to get involved, CJP Nation is an all-volunteer advocacy part of our organization. We're trying to bring together like-minded people to get engaged through crowdsourced research projects. Advocacy for transparency and accountability, tweet storms, letters to the editor, emails to public officials, um, also pushing legislation. We uh, have an ordinance we're trying to get in the city council to reshape how the city council and the city and the police accountability community have to respond to um, litigation, costs, judgments, settlements around police accountability, about policing anything, but mostly about police accountability. Um, another way to get involved is through our nation is social, be a social media ambassador. Help expand the reach of our social media presence across Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. We're soon going to, we're on LinkedIn and we're soon getting, hopefully getting to Twitch and Instagram. Another way is through fundraising. So uh, help us generate some donations to your friends, colleagues. So that's the nation. If you want to get involved, email at info at chicagojustice.org. And I will get you uh, all the information, plus every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Central, we have uh, nation strategy meetings, planning upcoming events and actions. You can, uh, if you drop an email to info at chicagojustice.org or right on our Facebook page or hit us up on Twitter, I will get you that link and you can join in tonight if you like. I also want to talk a little bit about the lawsuit filing that we, uh, we submitted uh, last Thursday against the Cook County State's Attorney's Office. There's some really great coverage in the Chicago Tribune on that uh, release. This is basically our second uh, time having to go into court against this against the agency. Unfortunately, the first time was against Anita Alvarez. Kim Fox took over. Kim Fox's administration took over that suit, settled it reasonably quickly. Um, came to we came to a settlement agreement, and that's uh, one of our settlement conferences. We worked out all the kinks. They gave us data. We got all these promises to. They were going to work with us to figure out, you know, to answer why columns or fields are empty or are missing or are different than we have in our discovery, because it gave us a lot of materials to discovery. And literally, once we left that office and they gave us the data, they basically breached that agreement from the start. They didn't give us the data in a format that is required by law, which is open and accessible, so people without super skills can open it. We were never able to get our data opened in a way that we could be comfortable or we thought was uh, valid so we could be sure and confident that we got all the data and was all open properly. They also failed to give us an update to that data. They failed to give us a data dictionary. They want us to believe they spent $3 million on that database back in 2005 and spent about $100,000 to $150,000 a year for multiple years after that, and they never got a data dictionary. They're on the record for that. They're also record and basically something we kind of caught them in a lie. We asked for data from our data that they turned over to us, but we could never open it supposedly from 2010 to 2017. We asked them from data in 1990 through 2010. They told us in a legal response, in the FOIA response, that they did not possess that data. 
and that they had actually given it to the Bureau of Technology in Cook County. When we let them know that it was on, at least from our perspective, that they handed them that database with privileged information, work product information, identities of the victims, offenders, and witnesses in that data set. Um, they were a little alarmed that we, I guess that we figured that out. I don't we really understand their response. And after weeks of going back and forth, they finally had to admit that they had imported that data into their current database, which is called crimes. Um, so they had to admit that, but that also meant that they were admitting that the response that they gave us was either grossly incorrect or was an outright lie. How they wouldn't have, the FOIA person, the Freedom of Information Officer wouldn't have checked in with the data people and the technology people to determine what they had um, is kind of baffling. So if he, if that, if whoever their FOIA officer, it was Chloe Rossmus at one point, if that FOIA officer did check in um, and um, lied to us purposely, we don't know at this moment, but you can bet we're gonna use discovery to dig out every aspect of what those responses were. They told us for years, they didn't, for a couple of years, I believe, that they didn't have any training materials for how you use the database. They just, people just learn by themselves, I guess through osmosis. I don't really understand how you would come in as a prosecutor in the Cook County Prosecutor's Office in the criminal division, and you would somehow just magically know what to put in all the boxes in their $3 million case management system. And lo and behold, Earlier this spring, they suddenly found one, 90 pages. It just kind of miraculously appeared. Um, so that's going on. We're going to keep you abreast of every move. Our first court date is February 9th right now. Um, we'll see if we get a response. We haven't heard anything from Kim Fox's office, but we're expecting we're going to hear something shortly after the election. Keep it tuned to this, you know, these channels, this show, and our social media, and you'll be kept up to date. Town halls, and this goes to a little bit to our topic of today, um, being sexual assault response in the city. Our first town hall is going to be held in late November. When we have a firm date, we'll let you know. But it's going to be on rape kits and rape kit, basically reimagining a new paradigm around transparency about rape kit processing. It has been something that has just stuck in me since I started CJP. Illinois has had this never-ending backlog of problems processing rape kits that even when we tried to solve it or it had been solved a couple of years ago, they didn't tell anyone, but they actually were just taking care of testing the old cases but not keeping up testing the new cases. So they just recreated another backlog. And there's been several moves of legislation at trying to reduce it or solve it, but none of it mandated that they just provide the money every year by law that they're forced to provide the money. So it's never really been taken care of. So um, also the Illinois State Police, just about a month ago, month and a half ago, about um, in COVID time, that seems like six years ago, but um, six or eight weeks ago, I think, the Illinois State Police started a rape kit tracking system. And basically from what I understand, and I'm sure Madeline is going to correct me if I'm wrong in a couple minutes, but it allows um, survivors who go to the hospital and have um, and submit to a rape kit collection, which is collecting um, evidence, hopefully, to identify the offender. They, they're now, I believe, giving a, a tracking number, and there is a website run by the Illinois State Police by which uh, survivors can go and uh, track at what stage 
uh, the kit is in the processing? Has it been sent in by the police? Have they, has it been tested by the state police crime lab? Has it been uh, sent back to the police agency? Are there any hits in the data, uh, DNA databases? That's a, we're all for that advancement, but we're not, we want to have a town hall to, to jumpstart what we believe should be. We need to know what, how many rape kits justice agents, police agencies are taking in every day, when they're being sent in, how long the time takes to get them processed, are there codices, are there arrests, are there prosecutions? That is all knowable information at the same time of protecting the integrity and uh, privacy of the survivors, witnesses, offenders. You can get that information de-identified, um, but in a way that you're able to determine uh, or track impact by geography across the state or across the city of Chicago. You can also track, hopefully you can, we can, and we're open for discussing this, but is there a way to track the age? Is there a way to track the race, the gender of the people that are um, uh, of the survivors? I am open to how that should be done, but we wanna be able to find a way to track this and track for disparities in how the system is run. This system definitely needs a huge spotlight thrown on it. We can no longer let our public officials, including the ones in the state house right now in our legislature, continue to dock funding this system and what needs to be done. So in late November, we're going to start with a town hall, and that is going to be followed up um, with a series of freedom of information requests based on what we learned from that town hall to the Chicago Police Department, Illinois State Police, and many several other agencies, possibly the prosecutor's office, which will be interesting because we'll be suing them at that time. Um, also, uh, every Monday, our Monday morning brief goes out. It's basically an analysis of last week's media reporting on crime, violence, and justice issues. For this week, we talk about Mayor Lightfoot's secret plan to defund the police, even so she's told the public many times she's against it. She's also cutting like 600 positions from the department. Uh, but the fact that she's doing it with, without saying she's doing it allows her to move that budget money to any other item instead of building up, using that money to build up a response to domestic violence, to mental health, to drug treatment. Um, this this should, we, we believe it should be um, done in a more public, forceful way. We also talk about the Use of Force Working Group, which the Lightfoot Administration and the Chicago Police Department uh, gathered this group of people and then um, accepted a big 3% of their uh, recommendations. We also talk about if you pay a sense only to the mainstream media and you didn't catch or you don't look at Black Club or the Daily Line, you wouldn't have known last week that the uh, City Council's Public Safety Committee held hearing on what is called GAPA versus CPAC. It's the two competing versions. And now Mayor Lightfoot's about to drop her own, or it's going to trump everyone's, but it's the two competing community-driven versions for this community commission that's going to oversee the police. Um, that's an important hearing. And if you looked at the Tribune, the Sun-Times, 2579 or Fox, you missed it. And I didn't even see anything from BEZ. Um, you missed it. You wouldn't have known that, that that actually occurred. And that's a huge problem. One last thing before we get to Madeline. Upcoming guests next week, Louisa Mansky and Joy Immobile, which if, I'm, uh, if I mispronounce that, I'm sure Joy will let me know next week, who, uh, from the Worker Center for Racial Justice. They'll be discussing. They've done at least one report and multiple actions around defunding and around the social justice issues involving the criminal justice system. So we'll be talking to them 
next week. We uh, really look forward to that. So let's turn to our guest, Madeline Bear. Madeline, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate you uh, stopping by on the show. There you go. Can you hear me now? Oh, I, yeah. You're <laughs> muted. Yep. I can't hear you. Yep. Now. Hi. Thank, thanks so much for having me. I was just saying that um, I really appreciate um, CJP's commitment to FOIAs and transparency and data, open government. Um, it's just really wonderful. So thank you for your work. Well, thank you. And I, I really think that people, um, I've always wanted CJP to be a, uh, a vehicle for people, all kinds of different stakeholders to get information. And what I call as close to the truth as you can get. Um, and I know we had Barry Friedman from the Policing Project out of NYU on maybe about two months ago now, and he spoke to something, and I love the way he put it. You know, when people talk about underserved communities and policing there's a, and the justice system, there's really the problem is they're both underserved or underpoliced and overpoliced, right, at the same time, which means the violence, especially gender violence, um, and all kinds of violence that isn't like shootings that happens in other communities around the city, I believe, and I think the data would show this, get responded to differently than they do in the most underserved communities in Chicago. Um, so I think it's important to, that we keep bringing that up. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so you're the head of policy at CASE, uh, People Missed it, Chicago Alliance Against Sexual Exploitation. What does that mean? What is your daily job? Yeah, I mean, my um, my daily job is a little bit different every day, which I think is the best part of my work. Um, but because we take a really um, intersectional broad view of how to address sexual harm, um, we take a role in advocating on policies that we feel like will help survivors um, who experience all forms of harm in the variety of ways um, it happens to them because of who they are, how they identify. Um, we know that sexual violence disproportionately happens to people of color women and girls, immigrants, um, people who are low income or in poverty, um, people with disabilities. So we're constantly looking for um, new ways to be advocating for folks to um, really figure out what we can do to end sexual violence. So that often involves a lot of research, a lot of writing, um, a lot of uh, data work analysis like we've done with this report, um, trying to understand the systems at play and what we can be doing to improve the experiences of survivors within both the criminal system and the civil system as well. Can you, for the purpose of this report, you know, we all think we know what sex crime means, but what did that mean as far as this report, right? Because is that, um, we're talking only felonies, the most egregious acts, are we talking uh, the, the less, I, I don't know how to phrase it appropriately, yeah. but the less egregious things, the more violent things, what does that mean? Yeah, so we looked at, um, there's you know a multitude of different sex crimes that um, people could be arrested for, prosecutors could charge people for. Um, and what we did is looked at kind of the most common four that we see, which are aggravated criminal sexual assault, criminal sexual assault, aggravated criminal sexual abuse, and criminal sexual abuse. Um, what we know is that aggravated cases often involve a weapon or some kind of level of force. Um, whereas other cases maybe do not have those elements. Um, but criminal sexual assault, which was the most reported crime out of kind of all four of them, um, is kind of, unfortunately, your pretty regularly occurring rape case. Um, these are often misunderstood by our society because we're not comfortable um, understanding what rape is and actually understanding that 
date rape is rape and acquaintance rape is rape. And it's not necessarily a misunderstanding between two people out at a bar. It is in fact a crime. Um, so those were kind of the cases that we were looking at um, with respect to this report. Okay, one of the interesting things, and I, I'm gonna read it here, um, in the introduction, which like everyone should read everything in the report, but I thought the intro by itself was packed. Um, you talk about survivors of sexual violence are being used as a political shield to deflect urgent critiques of the United States policing system, um, including Chicago's questions like, what happens to rapists and abusers without police? Which I thought was a brilliant question, and I've heard it. And won't sexual assault and domestic violence be more frequent if police are there? If police aren't there to respond, what, how do you? So, what do you mean by that? By them being used as shields? How do you answer those questions? Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, we originally, just to give you some background, we originally had conceived of this report as um, one report focusing on the police department and the state's attorney's office, because obviously to prosecute these crimes, they must be working together, right? Um, but with kind of the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement and this, you know, really long overdue um, conversation about our policing systems, we felt like it was important to kind of retool the report a little bit to focus explicitly on policing. What we saw particularly in kind of, you know, your cable news conversations and your social media conversations was, well, if, um, we don't have police as, as well-funded as they are right now or in a similar format as they are. What are we going to do about domestic violence or sex crimes or other, you know, kind of gender-based violence crimes? And what we felt like was important to say is um, our, our police aren't responding to these crimes. Um, so it, it's a little bit of kind of like a red herring to, to assume that we are getting an appropriate response to survivors when evidenced in this report only 10 to 20% of survivors of these four crimes in the city are receiving any sort of response. Um, meaning that 80 to 90% of the survivors who do go to the police in Chicago don't see any sort of response to their case. Um, so I think it's just important to, you know, root our conversation in reality that police are not responding to these crimes adequately. So how are we going to support survivors in the meantime? How are we going to be ensuring that they have access and options and opportunities for justice within an um, improved police system, but at the same time outside of the criminal legal system. We know that the vast majority of sexual assault survivors throughout the country will never go to law enforcement in the first place. So for the people that do go, it's important to um, hold police accountable for their actions and ensure that they are responding in an appropriate manner and a trauma-informed manner. But at the same time, when two thirds of um, you know, sexual assault survivors aren't going to the police in the first place nationally, how are we supporting the survivors in our community when they're showing up at schools and universities and their workplaces? Are we supporting them in the multitude of ways that we could be doing? So it's just important to be looking at it from um, a more widespread lens and not just be thinking that police and public safety is the only way to root out sexual violence because not only are survivors often not going to the police in the first place, um, this report is evidence that police are not responding in a way that survivors are deserving of. Yeah, it's, it's been a very interesting to me in that nationally, I've been a little, I don't want to say upset or shocked. I just would have rather seen, I don't understand like this, the, this, the FOP, the police, let's just name talk Chicago, the brass within the Chicago police department, why they're not saying, please stand up something. So 
that helps when we go to a domestic violence situation, we're talking about that for a second, and we show up and there's been, um, there hasn't been, there's a disturbance, but there hasn't yet been violence. The police can't bring a cure to whatever interact, whatever, most of the time they can't bring a cure to what that, whatever problem is stemming from in that relationship or in that family or household, they're not really bringing a cure. And I know enough police and I've wrote, done write-alongs and stuff, they can point to the houses on their beats where the problems, where they've had these issues that they're repeatedly showing up to. I've been a little dismayed that the average cop hasn't been said, please stand up something that after we leave, well, one, maybe they don't even have to show up, but at least after they leave, there is some kind of response to stop the, you know, the, the things just being repeated. I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm naive. I don't know what your thoughts are on it. Um, I mean, we in this report, we don't necessarily get into the particulars of, you know, defunding the police or a co-responder model. I mean, we just want survivors to have the best response possible. And unfortunately, right now with the police department, we know that many survivors um, will base their entire criminal legal system experience based off of that first interaction with a police officer, that patrol officer who shows up at the hospital or shows up at, you know, where the rape occurred. And if those folks aren't properly trained and able to respond in an appropriate trauma-informed way, um, that's going to completely deter survivors from wanting to continue with their case. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. So let's look at just some stats that are in the introduction. 80, and this has always bugged me when the media talks about clearance rates and arrests for homicides and shootings. I keep begging them, extend that across all violence, if nothing else, and look at what's going on. And we'll get to some of your um, some of your charts in a little bit, but 80 to 90% of sexual harm reports to the CPD over the past 10 years have not resulted in an arrest. That's a kind of mind boggling number. Yeah, yeah. And especially when like you think about, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, you can finish. <laughs> I was going to say it's just it's it's even more mind-boggling when you think of the fact that two-thirds of survivors of all incidents of sexual harm are most likely not going to go to the police in the first place. So you're limiting kind of you know limiting it down to maybe one third who actually do go to the police. Of the ones that do go to the police, at least in Chicago, eighty to ninety percent get nothing. Um, you know that's that's extremely disconcerting and disheartening. It, it's. You would think that when a survivor is showing up to the police department and asking for help and assistance and some kind of you know response um, to not get anything is is shocking. Yeah, I mean that boils down. If I did the math in my head quick, to about an eight percent, maybe less, but about an eight percent of total cases end up in some kind of arrest, and it might be less than that. But that's um, in. Um, I just want to give people, they have to understand that how the justice system works. Everyone, their actions are always geared towards what gets measured, right? So an arrest doesn't mean a prosecution. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's, that's so wild is so for the people that aren't getting arrested. Right. Nothing's happening. And then ones that are getting arrested, there are some we're in a, this will probably be in your next report. And we looked a little bit at about a sex crimes report we did back in like, I think 2010. But you're then you're taking us a, a bunch of the probably some large percentage, I would bet, 
of the ones that are arrested are never prosecuted. They don't make it past felony review or they don't make it prosecuted at all. So even if it is 8% a lineup on arrest, you can imagine, I'm gonna take a guess to say anywhere from 30 to 60% are not even being prosecuted. That would be my guess. So now you're down to two or 3%. Yeah, and that's what we hope to find out with the next report, focusing kind of more on the state's attorney's office responses of the ones, yeah, that do receive an arrest. How many of them are going through the felony review process? What are the cases that tend to get elevated through felony review? Um, I would be curious to kind of understand the the demographics involving um, the victim, um, person who caused harm, and kind of understand whether they know each other, whether it's a kind of a stranger case, you know, which ones kind of fit into our societies. You know, collective understanding of rape, which frankly is is not rooted in the reality of how rape actually happens. Right, and just that is part of our ongoing lawsuit. That issue around um, the relationship between offenders and and, and survivors, um, not just of sexual assault, but of all crimes. In 2010, we FOIAed some data for our sexual assault report, and they refused to give us any data related to whether or not there was a relationship. And the public mm. access counselor's office, the Illinois attorney general said, no, 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 no. You're right. You don't have to give them data on whether there was a relationship, but you do have to give them data on whether there wasn't, right? So at least we would have those numbers to look at and yeah. be able to see how they proceeded. At that point through the aggregate, um, we have case level data. From my understanding, we've had some uh, people look at it that that relationship data is not what they stripped that when they turned that over to us. Um, which is not surprising, but it's very important to understand. Um, and we'll get to transparency later, but these these numbers should scare people, right? And the media focuses, I think, obsessively and too much on um, crime violence with guns, and not that that's not important, but um, they, I, I think they underreport domestic violence and sexual assault. Uh, yeah, absolutely. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I, I do think that um, our city collectively doesn't have an understanding that even though community violence and gun violence is is a significant part of our city, it's it's something that people are grappling with every day. Um, we, we can't dismiss the reality of that situation. Um, but it's important to remember that domestic violence is the top call that Chicago police are called for. Um, and it's, it's a little bit uh, discouraging to not recognize the intersections between gun violence, community violence, and gender-based violence. Um, sexual assault survivors can often be, you know, victims of domestic violence as well. And people who are in domestic violence relationships can often be um, harmed with guns or other weapons. This is all very intersectional. Um, and we can't necessarily be parsing it out as one thing or the other. Um, they're often, you know, interlocking together and interwoven, unfortunately. Yeah, I told, I had a um, meal, I, got, I think it was dinner, with um, soon to be Alderman Castleman. Before, while he was running in his initial, um, many years ago in his initial campaign, and I told him he was talking about street violence, and I'm like, how about you deal with the most common thing, the most common call that's coming in? And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, it, it's domestic disturbance, and then domestic violence, by far. And um, I don't think he knew that, but sadly to report, I don't think a lot has come out policy-wise that way. We are still... Um, it's driven into us by every corner. The media does a, um, um, I guess I'm, to their fact, a tremendous job now in drilling that into us. I think if people looked at the numbers and we're trying to uh, do some analysis now um, between 
shooting incidents, gun violence, murders, and then looking at domestic violence numbers. They would be shocked by how much domestic violence dwarfs all of that. Um, and I'm Absolutely. convinced you're not going to settle. You're not going to settle, um, quote unquote, street violence, um, or and I think most acts of violence until you get peace um, and safety in our homes. Like I think that's uh, a massive driver that uh, criminologists and people in general don't talk about um, anywhere or not. So yeah, I'm rambling. I have very big problems with the media. Um, just for our <laughs> audience, early winter 2021, we'll be releasing four an analysis of four years of uh, what was traditionally called violence against women coverage, domestic violence and sexual assault. We have a report on our website um, that looked at a year in 2013. We're going to be updating that and showing you this time, instead of just looking at the Chicago Tribune, and sometimes we suck in the coverage from the TV stations and the radio stations. So we'll be able to give you what um, the two TV stations, 2579 and Fox 32 in Chicago, what their coverage has been. I'm um, looking forward to that very much. Let me just say, we do have some questions and comments that are coming in over social media. Just want to let everyone know we're going to save time at the end uh, to uh, give Madeline some of those questions. So Eric, if you can put up chart one, if you don't mind, we're going to look at some of the charts you all sent us uh, so people can get an idea of the numbers. There we go. Why is, you see the three of the four crime types that you looked at pretty much a little increase, a little decrease, depending on the one. Why is criminal sexual assault um, from 2013-14, why is that the only one that is going up the way it is? Yeah, I mean, we, we did not necessarily get into the specifics of why. I mean, I think it's a difficult question to answer, but there's a few things that I think we can point to. Um, obviously, with the Me Too movement kind of resurging in um, the 2016 election, 2017 as well, it's important to recall how many people were wanting to come forward with what happened to them, how many people had experienced something and kind of, you know, kept it inside and put it away um, and had not necessarily wanted to come forward. So I think that that could account for some of it as well. There also was a state law, um, Sexual Assault Incident Procedure Act, that was implemented in 2018 to require all law enforcement to take a report every time someone came in to report um, a sexual assault crime against mm -hmm. them. So it's important to recall that because we know from um, you know the attorneys that we work with and the many other kind of rape crisis agencies and other kind of allied groups, we know that survivors oftentimes when they went to the police might have been turned away or discouraged from actually making a report. They would get there and officers would say something to them that would be discouraging and not ensure that they don't want to necessarily move forward with a report. So with that law change, um, I'm anticipating that some of those numbers can account for that, but also just with reference to the Me Too movement, a greater understanding of what sexual assault is um, and not just assuming that it's, you know, the stranger in the bushes, um, someone that you don't know, um, but in actuality, um, the, the reality of what these cases are and the willingness of people to come forward. Right, and just the reference our report, when we looked at the year of coverage between the trip and some times in 2000, it was 2011 and 12 coverage. It actually, uh, we looked at sexual assault and domestic violence separately, but grouped, we didn't separate the papers, we grouped it all as one. Of the 203 sexual stories that we classified as sexual assault during that time, 195 were on stranger assaults. Wow. Right, which 
Um, that's a little over 90%. And I talked to multiple journalists. We brought one in off the record, then I talked to him at events I saw him, and I, I, I talked to him about the numbers, and not a single one thought there was anything wrong with that number. Which I was flabbergasted at. I was just going to say, I think we're comfortable with, um, we're comfortable with the idea that rape is only committed by people that we don't know that are strangers that are monstrous um, and not recognizing that it's something that unfortunately is regularly occurring. This is a, this is a thing that happens all the time, every single day. Um, and it's, it's, it's not comfortable for us to acknowledge that the people that are causing harm are people that we know there are, pastors, there are community leaders, there are um, neighbors, our friends, our family. Um, there's a level of discomfort with that. So I think it's easier to assume, oh, well, we're just going to be comfortable with this assumption that it's strangers. And we're, we're comfortable with that understanding. We are not comfortable with acknowledging that it's people that we love and we care about and that we respect. Right. But then you, you can't, I agree with you, but then the media, you can't call attention and get resources to fight something if the media is not covering and showing that it's a problem, right? Um, I also, I was teaching at the University of St. Francis a few years back and I had a class full of students and we were taught brought up sexual assault. And I said, listen guys, if you, and it's mostly men, I'm being totally in the binary way here, but I just said, guys, if you wanna know what the person who's most likely to assault a woman in their lives, go home, look in the mirror. And they were very, very, very unhappy with me. <laughs> and I'm, I, saying, well, I, I'm not saying so. you in particular. Right. But that's unfortunately, that is what the problem really is. I, um, not that I, the, the assaults where someone jumps out of the bushes or breaks into your home, they're awful or just as awful. But imagine if we could take out 70 or 80% of the assaults that are actually happening. The ones that aren't being covered were actually not happening. How much, um, sad, sadly, that improved, there would be an improvement for um, the people who are being assaulted by family members and colleagues and stuff. So, oh my God, it just all that just drives me absolutely nuts. Um, it's really hard. I know. I've been trying to get, uh, uh, with all the data we've opened, I'm trying to get funding for uh, Violence Against Women dashboard in Chicago to look to track these cases through the system. Um, yeah, absolutely. That would be wonderful. Not a lot, unfortunately. Okay, Eric, can you put up chart number two for us, please? So I think this is a rest race, right? All right, so I'm going to ask the question because I want to make sure this is clear to our audience. So in your report, you looked at arrest rates, not necessarily what the police call case clearances. Yep. Right, is that correct? Yes, yeah. So what we did was... Um, basically evaluating the number of reports that came in um, related to when an incident occurred. So for example, if someone said I was raped in 2013, looking at all the cases that were reported um, to have occurred in 2013, how many of those cases led to an arrest? As opposed to looking at a clearance rate of we made this many arrests in the year, which would be thinking about reports that reports and incidents that have come in from a variety of years. Maybe an arrest was made in 2015 or 2017 or even 2013 from when an incident actually happened in 2013. What we wanted to be able to do 
is particularly for our attorneys um, who work directly with clients who are maybe thinking about reporting to the police to be able to say, okay, well, let's look at it from this perspective. If you were to report an incident for the year of 2015, this is how many of them actually led to an arrest. For the cases that occurred in 2016, here's how many actually led to an arrest rather than there were X number of arrests in 2018, which could have occurred from maybe a, a rape from 1999 or 2005. Um, we just think it's important to kind of get the, the time and point of when these things occurred. You know, I, I definitely agree. I've argued unsuccessfully, unfortunately, for years arguing with the police department to report two different numbers, right? Which is how many arrests came from our clearances or whatever the number would be, came from cases that were reported in this year. And then you can report also, by the way, we made 100 or 300 other arrests from previous years and report out those years, right? Yep. I think that, um, and then you can keep correcting and adding to the data as the time goes on. I think that would be very informative. But then if you look at yeah. that chart again, all four of those numbers, the arrest numbers are going down. Do you, do you, can you, can you, can you uh, come up with a reason or a, hypothesis why you think those numbers are going down the way they are? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's difficult to answer the question of why. I mean, we really wanted to focus on kind of what the situation is right now, document it, and then kind of begin um, a further conversation of why. But I think it could be a multitude of reasons, um, whether we feel like um, the police department doesn't have enough time or resources for detectives to be investigating these cases. That could be something that the police department could say. Um, whether it could be um, more reports are coming in, particularly for criminal sexual assault, and they don't have the capacity to investigate those. Um, simply put, maybe there's just not interest in investigating these cases. Maybe they're focused on other things. Um, I think it could be a wide variety of reasons. Um, but I think talking about exactly where we are um, in terms of arrest rates and how likely a case is actually going to lead to an arrest in, you know, in real time the last 10 years is an important way to actually document maybe and get those answers as to what police are saying about how they're responding. Okay, when you say start this discussion, is case planning some kind, some kind of extended discussion with the criminal justice stakeholders based off these Absolutely. reports? And what does that engagement just generally look like in, in general? Absolutely. So part of part of our work is always engaging with criminal justice partners. I mean, we're always in conversations with the state's attorney's office and other people at the table to kind of assess their response over the last quarter or other times. Um, we're hoping to kind of work with the police department a little bit more to understand their response, but we definitely have meetings in the works and things to be scheduled. Um, we absolutely want to be continuing this conversation, um, but I don't necessarily think we're at a place to talk exactly about what that's going to look like. But we can, uh, we I always use these I was going to say, we always use these reports as advocacy. Yeah, I, I'm very interested in how uh, I hope that con those conversations will be successful. Uh, we tried to have, uh, we tried to create a sexual, we did create a sexual assault task force chaired by Rahm's office and uh, Tony Preckwinkle's office. And uh, we, we met with the police, the 911 center, the state's attorney, and um, the state's attorney and police after about a year ganged up and said, we're not going to give you data to either. If neither of us gives you data, you can't use it against us and you're just out of luck. So I, I, I really hope your advocacy is uh, much more successful than ours was. 
Um, but we're doing it from the other end. We're just going to keep flowing and suing um, so we can um, make the data and the results available. All right, Eric, can you put up chart number three, please? Okay, I know those numbers are so far off, and there seems to be this very almost in uniform to a degree rise in the number of reports and drop in the number of arrests starting or i guess starting in 2014. it would seem to me there'd be more arrests if they had more cases am i am i missing something I mean, I, I would have thought similarly, um, but at the same time, I'm also wondering what the capacity is for people to actually investigate these crimes and their willingness to investigate these crimes. For criminal sexual assault, like I was saying earlier, these are kind of our, um, frankly, regularly occurring rape cases. And I think our society, which goes down to our police departments, is uncomfortable with um, understanding what these cases actually are, that it's often between friends or family members or people that we know. And um, it becomes a story of he said, she said, which is really uncomfortable for people to actually take a look at. And I think it's probably pretty discouraging for survivors to go in for a report and likely not see an arrest because there's frankly um, myths around what rape is and a fundamental misunderstanding of that it's regularly occurring. It's extremely common. Um, and there's not a willingness to account for that and to actually hold people accountable for committing that harm because we just don't see those people as, you know, the aggravated criminal sexual assaults, which are often weapons and potentially strangers or a difference in age between the victim and the person who caused harm. So it's just um, a lot more difficult, I think, to get arrests in these cases because of our unwillingness um, as a community, as a society, which goes down to our police department to actually count, understand these as crimes. Well, I've, I agree with what you said. I'm a little disgusted in that we're talking about this as we're approaching 2021 of getting a police department to think one of the possibilities and probably have very strong possibilities. We're still struggling in getting the police, um, which is still a majority male endeavor to believe uh, survivors when they come in and file a complaint. Um, that's, um, that's unfortunate that we're still here. Absolutely. And, you know, obviously that's training right. is helpful. Um, you know, we, we that's, that's part of the conversation always is whether police can get more training to solve this. But fundamentally, um, it's the attitude in which we treat survivors. Um, anytime a survivor comes forward, um, they're often belittled, disbelieved, disregarded, um, extremely difficult to come forward. And yet we, we collectively treat them like they're making it up like they're confused that it was a misunderstanding. Um, and I, I wonder how, how much we can do to really fix that attitude. We need a cultural shift. Um, you know, one day of training might not be, you know, the, the solve to this. It's a, it's a cultural issue we need to address. I agree. And I think um, I am an advocate and I've said this before, and it may have been in my cranes op-ed. I'm, I'm an advocate for defunding but not defunding it by getting rid of the police department completely, but in a way that incorporates various different levels and various different um, expertises in the response to things. Um, and I 
they've, in my opinion, they, for the most part, have proven they're in, if we're still seeing this in 2020 or 2019, they've, the department itself, as it is structured, is proven they're not willing to do the change that's needed. Um, at least that's my opinion. Yeah. Um, so I mean, we need a, we need a, yeah, I mean, we need a response to sexual assault that goes beyond policing. Um, unfortunately, that's really been the only focus in our understanding of how to prevent sexual assault is arrest everyone, make sure that they can get prosecuted. But as we can see, the vast majority of people will never see an arrest, never be prosecuted. So how can we actually prevent this from occurring and address it in a way that's supportive of survivors? We need to be addressing it at all intersections of our community, whether that's community services, rape crisis centers, prevention initiatives, going into schools, educating kids about consent and healthy relationships, um, thinking about alternatives to the criminal justice system, like restorative justice or transformative justice if a survivor is interested in doing that. We need all options on the table to address this. Um, we're, we're not gonna police our way out of this problem. Right, and advocates keep saying that, and then it gets into the mouths of politicians and criminal justice leaders, and then they do nothing but police their way out of it. David Brown was not a fan of special roving units, and he got here, and all of a sudden he created this 100-person and 300-person unit um, that's roving the city. Um, and almost every time they started those units, those units have went very, 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 very bad at some point. Um, but we don't like to learn from history either because we're Chicago. <laughs> uh, Eric, can you put up chart number six for us, please? So days between arrests. So we're going to look at chart seven in a second. That'll give you a little more context here. But if criminal sexual assault is what you're saying is the most commonly regularly occurring form of assault and I'm assuming most of those are going to be, am I right in assuming that most of those are, um, the offenders are known to the victim? Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so 43 is the average. If the offender knows, I mean, if the survivor knows the offender, and the survivor goes and reports, and the survivor goes, tells the police who did it. How can it take them on average? I mean, shouldn't we expect a much lower number there? Yeah, I mean, that was, that was my, amount of time? I mean, that's the thing that's um, kind of fascinating about this is absolutely to your point, the vast majority of sexual assault survivors know the person that harmed them. We, we know who they are. I think the um, best stat we have is like 85% or so. They know the person that harmed them. And um, I know in the police department's response to our report um, that uh, they had shared with reporters, they had said, you know, it is exceedingly difficult to work on these cases because victims know the offender. Um, that, you know, it can be um, difficult to kind of parse out the truth of what happened, the understanding of what happened. Um, it's hard to get victims to want to come forward potentially if they know the person that harms them. And I, that all is, that all is true. Um, but, but to your point, if we know who someone is, it makes it that much easier um, to understand how to investigate and to actually um, arrest them because we know who they are. We're not looking for a suspect in, um, you know, certain clothes or, you know, we're, we're not looking for a person. We know who they are. Um, so it's just getting kind of the, the right witnesses and information to the table, um, which frankly, I, I would expect to not take as long, um, considering we already know who the person is. 
when I, when I looked at your report, I read it a while back when it came immediately came out, and then I looked at it again early this morning. I looked at the in the charts you all sent. I was kind of flabbergasted by that <laughs> for forty three days. It 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 um it would seem to me that pretty much everyone who's going to be a witness in most of those cases is going to be known to the victim, right? Or the offender, if the offender is saying, I didn't do it, I was, but here is whoever I was with at the time, or whoever was around at the time. Um, I'm kind of baffled. And I think it's that that's more, more. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, it's that, it's that much more disconcerting for respect to survivor safety um, when they're waiting for this to happen, when they're waiting for any level of response is, Likely this person knows where they live, knows where they go to school, knows where maybe they, you know, go out to dinner with their friends. Um, it, it becomes that much more um, scary to be waiting for an arrest to happen um, because this person is known to you. Well, yeah, see, see that, that didn't occur to me, but you're 100% correct. It would seem the urgency, um, I guess if you're talking a stranger assault and they got you somewhere that wasn't just in your home, and that's what the assault didn't just occur there. They may not know where you live. They may not be able to easily track you down if they understand the police are investigating. Whereas what you would think one of the first things the police are going to do is go talk to the alleged offender, especially since they've been ID'd by the, the survivor. Um, I hadn't thought about that. Right, here's a little more context to those numbers that we just looked at. Eric, can you put up chart seven, please? And so other violent crimes, we haven't talked about those yet, but I have them. So the other violent crimes are aggregate numbers of first degree murder, aggravated battery and armed robbery categories. So you can see up until around 2014, uh, 2015, those um, arrest rates were very similar. And then there seems to be a marked drop off since that time. Um, that's some pretty um, significant results there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, we picked those three offenses to look at because um, the first degree homicide, um, aggravated battery and armed robbery, just because they're often the ones that um, police point to as ones that they want to fix the clearance rate of or the arrest rate of. And they're also um, some of the crimes that are most likely to lead to incarceration at IDOC. So um, those are the reason that we picked those three to kind of make a, a broad comparison. Um, but it, to me, it just demonstrates a, a deprioritization of addressing gender-based violence. Again, I mean, I feel like I have a, a broken record at times, but we just simply don't see it as a priority. We don't believe sexual assault survivors, um, and it makes it that much harder for survivors to get any sort of justice in the criminal legal system because of it. Yeah, I I agree. Um, it's it's really pretty scary. And it, it really, as your report, one of your recommendations is about data and then that and the need for more data. I think there's definitely a need about, um, and we talked to them about this back when we had the sexual assault task force, although it was completely on deaf ears. Like there there should be by the police department, they should be detailing like. All right, you got this complaint that came in. Uh, how many days until you called the survivor? The survivor identified the the what, who, the offender. How many days till you got that offender statement? What did you do to get it? Um, I know when we looked at our sexual assault, when we did our sexual assault study and case processing, 
we, we sent a FOIA into the police department and asked for all case statuses. And we asked for everything we could think of. And it was like the overwhelming cases, overwhelming number of cases every year were suspended, the investigations. So if you just asked for open, which I think the media did a lot, you'd see, oh, they have 25 investigations open from last year. Well, that doesn't sound bad with a city of 2.7 million people. And then yeah. lo and behold, almost all the investigations are suspended, which um, speaking of data, it would be nice to know if they would capture why a case is suspended. Absolutely. I mean, we um, we had asked that to the police department as part of our work, like if they're, um, you'd be familiar with this, but in the public safety database, um, an arrest is either listed as true or false. True meaning an arrest occurred. So for all the cases that are listed false, we were wondering, um, are these cases still open? And by open, do we mean are they being actively investigated or are they just open because an arrest hasn't occurred and there might not be someone actually working on that case? Um, and it's our the response that we got was it's considered open if there's not an arrest. Um, but for us, it's like it would be important to know, to your point, which ones are being actively investigated and which ones are kind of maybe sitting on a shelf um, and not seeing any sort of progress. Okay, if I would recommend that you go back at them because I think what they told you actually is, um, I can document it as completely untrue. They're at, opens, at least yeah. when we looked at it in the early 2010-11 range, were cases that were, were actively being investigated. Um, and then everything else was categorized as suspended. Like when all leads, all leads were exhausted or they were, um, is what we, when we talked to advocates, we had a bunch of advocates on our task force or, um, it was when they were pending DNA results. And it's back to the rape kit, telling all we want to do, but yep. it would be like pending, it's an acquaintance rape, but we're going to do, we, we got a rape kit, and we're going to test it, we're just going to make you wait a year or two before we do anything to get those results. So from my understanding, yep. at least, they, um, I, I would check those case categorizations because I just don't believe anything any of these people are telling us. Okay, um, there is someone who I think may know you, but. Um, commented through Facebook, uh, Danny Hensley, like hopefully Danny, I pronounced your last name right. Um, and I just want to hear you comics. I know I've heard this from advocates too, but um, I'll just read Danny's comment. We also need to talk about these sworn police personnel who use intimidation to get victims to back off, mm -hmm. especially when the victim is extremely traumatized or, met, or uh, is extremely traumatized mentally. To what degree do you think, well, we've talked a little about earlier about the first response. How critical is that first response from the patrol officer to getting uh, victim cooperation, building victim trust, or, sorry, survivor trust, and yeah. actually bringing the case to a, a, a positive resolution? I mean, that first response is so critical, is so critical. I mean, we, we've heard many stories from um, survivors, say, going to hospitals, um, and a police officer is insisting on talking to them, maybe in the midst of their rape kit and forensic medical exam being completed. Um, that's a really vulnerable state to be in. You're in a hospital, people are poking and prodding you, trying to get evidence off of your body. I mean, that's a really vulnerable state to be in. And, you know, we know that there are circumstances where police will, you know, push to be in the room and talk to them right away and get a statement right away. And that's really, really off-putting. Um, so that's kind of one scenario that we that we commonly hear of or see. But overall, that, fir that first interaction is so critical um, to determining whether a survivor is gonna wanna move on with their case. If a patrol officer is um, 
more antagonistic or aggressive or maybe disbelieving of them, maybe asking questions like, well, how much were you drinking? Were you using drugs? Do you feel like you could have said no? Or, you know, those kinds of questions are going to um, cause the, the survivor to blame themselves. They're not going to want to move forward with a case if they feel like that first interaction with an officer was so negative. Why continue on? Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's a sad once again, we're approaching 2021 and we're still talking about the quality of the initial meeting between a survivor and a police officer. It's mind boggling. It hasn't been fixed. Um, we're going to do our, our best to level best to get data to prove that that's a problem. Uh, Madeline, where do they, where can they go to get this report? Yep, absolutely. You can go to our website, www.case.org. Case is C-A-A-S-E.org. Um, our report will be on there as well as um, previous reports that we've done in the past um, about CPD's interaction um, with folks. <laughs> yeah, there's there's my cat. Just really enjoying enjoying the uh, show today. He didn't make an appearance, shockingly, but yeah, you can get the report from uh, case.org. Those are the beings that have won um, COVID shutdown. Is the pets that have their their pack around them at all times now. Absolutely. He's he's a big fan, but he's also a troublemaker. So I'm, I'm grateful, <laughs> frankly, he didn't make an appearance. <laughs> All right, Madeline Bear, thank you so much for taking your time. I really appreciate it. Um, we're hoping Case will be on our town hall. I do believe I've talked to Kefa that someone from um, Case will be on there. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we'll keep you updated um, on our website, but also through this show and on social media about the upcoming town hall. You can also, if you're interested in being part of the nation, info at chicagojustice.org. Email me anytime today. I'll get you the link for tonight's meeting. We have strategy meetings every Wednesday night. Madeline, thanks again, and stay safe, and hopefully we talk soon. Thanks so much, Tracy. I appreciate it.